he wanted to meet with me for lunch. This is a man in our community. He doesn't belong to our church, but I ministered to him from time to time. I knew he had been out of work for a long time, and I figured he wanted to meet and talk about that. But I sat down at the diner table across from him, and I wasn't prepared for what he was about to say. He said, she wants a divorce. She said to me, I married you for financial security. You're not providing that anymore. You're a failure. Now, I know that's a really sad way to begin a sermon. But I want you to see this man as I saw him that day in the diner. I want you to see him as I saw him. Because in that moment, I saw this man so sad, so heartbroken, so crushed. In fact, in his own words, he said, I feel rejected and unloved. I want you to see him because in that moment, I realized this is how God feels. When I treat God this way, when I basically believe that I'm in this relationship with God and His end of the bargain is to provide material provision for me, and as long as He does that, my end of the bargain is that I'll remain close to Him. We break the heart of God when we treat Him that way. This is what Asaph discovers in the sanctuary. We come now to our third and final installment of Psalm 73, and I want to just thank you as a congregation for letting me indulge in this psalm all month and preach on it three different times. It's like a diamond that we turn and see a new facet, a new color, and I want to thank Pastor Chuck for yielding the pulpit for the entire month of November. Thank you. If he can still remember how to preach, we'll hear from him next week. We find now the culmination of Asaph's prayer. In the first two sermons of the series, we saw that Asaph, in the sanctuary, got a new perspective, a new perspective of how he views other people and of how he views himself. He found himself in a place we often find ourselves. He found himself in the compare and despair trap. See, he had a very low view of others and a very high view of himself, and it all began with some wrongly guided theology. In verse 1 of Psalm 73, he lays out his theological worldview. He says, truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. If I have a pure heart, was his assumption, God will be good to me. And this got him into all kinds of trouble because the human tendency is to count our own righteousness and count the unrighteousness of others around us. We just tend to do that as human beings. We have more interest in the speck in our neighbor's eye, and we can't see the log in our own. Jesus said that. And he also said something that's very relevant for where the psalm leads. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Asaph and we, we tend to put our treasure in things in this world while we count our own righteousness and the unrighteousness of others. And we start to look to God and we say, where's my blessing? I deserve it. They don't. 
This was Asaph's worldview in verses 12 and 13 before he goes into the sanctuary of God and gets a whole new perspective on these things. In verses 12 and 13, we see, this is by way of review, by the way, we see how he viewed others and how he viewed himself pre-sanctuary. He says this in verses 12 and 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Then he turns to his view of his own self. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You see what he's doing there? He's counting the unrighteousness of others, and he's counting the righteousness in his own life. And he's wondering, why isn't God blessing me like he's blessing them? I used the illustration in the first sermon of my daughter, who was then around four years old, who had every blessing a human could ever need on a, on a cold winter day. She was at warm near a fire, and she had a cup of hot chocolate, but she thought an injustice was being done to her because her brother had more marshmallows in his cup. And I heard from a lot of you saying, yeah, if I'm honest, I can relate to that. And I used another illustration two weeks ago when we turned to viewing our own self. I confessed before you that, well, I think I do more dishes in the house than my wife does. And boy, did I hear from a lot of you about that one. A lot of the men reached out to me and said, bro, you do dishes? You're making me look bad. So I apologize if that got anybody in trouble in your marriage. We often do this. We get ourselves in this miserable trap of compare and despair. We're perfectly capable of counting our own deeds and missing the deeds of others. So we, we're confused. We say, God, where's, where's my portion? Where's my blessing? Aren't you good to those who are pure in heart like me? But everything changes for Asaph in the sanctuary. He gets a new view of others. He gets a new view of himself when he's in the presence of God. You know, over the years of Asaph's life, he should have known better. He should have known better. He's a lot like us in many ways. You can follow Asaph's journey through First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. We first encounter Asaph. He's, he's like a bit player. He's literally a guy next to a guy in First Chronicles. He-man the singer. I can't wait to get to heaven and meet He-man the singer. He-Man the singer is standing there, and they're, they're collecting musicians and, and instrumentalists for the, um, the tabernacle band, and Asaph is spotted there at the right hand of He-Man the singer, and he gets invited into the band. And a few chapters later in 1 Chronicles, we see Asaph again, and it seems that he's been promoted from that position. He, he's in charge of a few more things. And then in 2 Chronicles, when Solomon's grand temple has been constructed... They have a grand opening of Solomon's temple, a huge worship service. Can you picture it? By that time, Asaph is the chief musician in all of Jerusalem. He's experienced promotion after promotion after promotion, probably some fame around Jerusalem. And yet even he who leads God's people into worship in the sanctuary, even he started counting his own deeds and discounting the deeds of others and wondering why God wasn't blessing him. He should have known better, but he forgot. He was led astray like any of us could be. But finally, he has some kind of unique and special worship experience in the sanctuary, and his whole perspective changes. 
Verse 18, he looks back at the same people he was despising before, and now he has mercy on them. He realizes that God will deal with them. And he looks at his own self, he looks at his own heart that he thought was so pure in his pre-sanctuary worldview. And now he realizes, my heart isn't pure at all. It's stained with bitterness. And he meets the God in the sanctuary, the God of the nevertheless. The God who says, nevertheless, even though you are counted among those who are sinners, nevertheless, I still love you. I still accept you. This is what Asaph experiences in the sanctuary because he has a personal encounter with the holy God. You know, we pastors can always tell when we've had a special Sunday here at Standwich. Because after the service, when you all are spilling out of all the doors, there's a different look on your faces. This is true. We talk about this sometimes. We, we come into the sanctuary every Sunday and we're, we're carrying all the things of the world. Maybe it's worry, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's laughter, or, or we're just talking with one another. We have a certain look on our face from being out there in the world. But when the service is over, if we've truly met God, if we've had one of those behold moments, we walk out of here and our faces have changed. See, God changes us in the sanctuary. God changed Asaph. He had a low view of others and a high view of himself. And we sometimes walk into this place thinking about that. But we walk out having a whole new perspective. We have mercy on the people around us. And we have an honest view of ourselves through confession and through realizing what he did for us on this cross. He changes us. Now, so far in this sermon, we've been talking mostly, in this sermon series, we've been talking mostly about this compare and despair trap, which is really a psychological phenomenon, a psychological reality that can get solved in the sanctuary. But there's actually something more significant. There's something deeper than simply the psychology of how we relate with others going on here. And it's theological. It actually affects our relationship with God because comparing distances us from God. Comparing distances us from God. That's what Asaph experienced in his pre-sanctuary world. You read about it with me in verses 10 and 11. Look at Asaph's view of God when he's in his compare and despair trap. Verses 10 and 11, he says this, therefore, God's people turn back to those who are wicked and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Now, if you're a believer in God, this should scandalize you. Asaph's audacious statement here. You see, what Asaph is doing in this part of the prayer is the exact same thing that that woman did to the man I met with in the diner. She said, I reject you. This is what Asaph is saying. Remember, his theological presupposition at the beginning of the prayer is God is good to those who are pure in heart. And he spends the next several verses saying, I'm pure in heart. Where's my blessing? Why aren't you being good to me? You're being good to those who are wicked. You know what? You know what? Maybe, maybe God, you don't know anything. That's really what he's saying here. Verses 10 and 11. God, you're a failure. If the, if the agreement here is that you're good to me if I'm pure in heart, you're failing. Is there knowledge in the Most High? I think Asaph knows how dangerous this prayer is because he actually puts it on the lips of others. Do you notice that? God's people say this. 
That's what he says. Asaph wrote the prayer, so he says it, okay? But this is how we act sometimes with God. That's why I wanted you to see that man in the diner who felt rejected and unloved when his wife said, you're not providing for me anymore. You're a failure. This is a pretty low view of God, isn't it? You want to know how to break God's heart? Only count on him for the material blessings. I met with the man again a few days ago, the man in the diner, because I wanted to ask his permission to use this story in the sermon. I told him how I wanted to use it, and he said, yeah, I think that will really help people. Go ahead and use it. And then I said, well, how you doing, brother? And suddenly, he sat up straight in his chair, his shoulders went back, and he had this smile that lit up the room. He said, my daughter called from college. She knew that I'm going to be in town in the next couple of days, and she said, Daddy, can we have dinner tomorrow night? I just want to be with you. I miss you. This very same man who was so heartbroken and crushed by the rejection of his wife was now lit up with joy. Why? Because his daughter just wanted to be with him. This is the truth that Asaph discovers in this prayer as well. He was relying on God for material provision. He was missing God himself. This is Asaph's new view of God now in the sanctuary. Let's read about it as we move on post-sanctuary, verses 23 and following. Asaph, now in the sanctuary, beholding God, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Daddy, I just want to have dinner with you. I just want to be with you. This makes God's heart sing. Asaph realizes in the sanctuary that he has all that he needs if he has God, both now and into glory. What is your only comfort in life and in death? You know that question? It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. I teach it to my confirmation kids year after year. What is my only comfort in life and in death? I have the kids imagine some things that bring them comfort in life. Their family, good food, their comfortable bed. And then I ask, can any of those bring you comfort in death? What is my only comfort in life and in death? The answer, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What brings us comfort in life and in death is being near, is being with, is belonging to our faithful Savior. This is what Asaph discovers in the sanctuary. Then he continues in verse 25 in this wonderful gaze. I just picture Asaph gazing into the face of God. He says this in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Asaph in the sanctuary has this vantage point now. He's seeing the world as God sees it. He's seeing the whole world. 
It wouldn't be until 1972 that we'd get a picture of the whole world. NASA released that image, you know it, it's called the blue marble, where one of our space rocket ship things took a photograph of planet Earth and suddenly we could behold all of planet Earth from space. But here in the sanctuary, Asaph has that view, and he looks back at the whole world, everything the world can offer, job promotions, security, fame, material provision. And Asaph, beholding the face of God, seeing his true treasure, he looks back at the whole world, he says, there's nothing there. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you, O God. Asaph knew it. Jesus taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this amazing thing. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Where's your heart? Is it on something the world can offer? If so, you might find yourself in the compare and despair trap. Is it in heaven? You will never be disappointed. Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Asaph knew it. Jesus taught it. The apostle Paul reaffirms it in Colossians. For those of us who are in Christ, he has died and have been raised again. We have died and been raised again with him. And he says this in Colossians 3. He says, if then we've been raised with Christ... Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Where is your heart? Where is your mind? Is it with your truest treasure in heaven? If so, you will never be disappointed. What do you think about? I despise Black Friday. (laughs) Because there we have a whole day set apart just to be thankful, just to be grateful. Thank you, God, for who you are, what you've done. Now let's go buy some more. Let's go elbow out the competition to get... What are we doing Set your mind on things above. I was driving to school a few weeks ago with the children. I bring them to school every morning, and we drive down Stanwich Road, and uh, Riley sits in the front seat. He's my nine-year-old boy, and Eva sits in the back. She's my seven-year-old girl. We came around a bend down Stanwich Road, and all of a sudden, the, the morning sun was just blasting through the front windshield. And it was like, ah, I was putting down the visor and putting on my sunglasses. Eva was squealing in the back seat because it was so bright. And I looked over at my son who was sitting there with his backpack, you know, holding his backpack like this. And he was just kind of swaying like this with his eyes closed, with the sun blasting on his face. And finally he spoke and he said, quote, Probably in heaven, the sunbeams are more real. I'm sitting there driving thinking, wow, man, <laughs> it's 7.40 a.m. I'm about to drop him off to go learn addition and subtraction. I'm like, good luck, teacher, with this one. Probably in heaven, sunbeams are more real. This is a boy who has his mind, who has his heart on things above. I was complaining about the sun blasting in my face. He was thinking about heaven. Set your mind on things above. Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Asaph's not done with his prayer. He says this now. 
in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. This is interesting because this is Asaph's fourth time now about, of talking about his heart. He began the prayer by saying, God's good to those who are pure in heart. And then his pre-sanctuary worldview, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. And then he meets God in the sanctuary. And post-sanctuary, he looks back at his own heart. And he says, my heart wasn't clean at all. It was pricked with bitterness. Now he returns to his heart and he says, my heart failed me, actually. My heart may fail. I was relying on my heart. I was relying on my righteousness. It's really a substitute for righteousness, this word heart in this psalm. I was relying on my righteousness. It failed me. But look, now God is the strength of my heart. My flesh may fail. I might even die. What's my only comfort in life and in death? It's that I belong to my Savior. My heart, my righteousness, my body, my strength may fail. I rely on God now. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His pre-sanctuary worldview was, God, where's my portion? Where's my blessing? Why are you blessing others and not me? Now he realizes if he has God, if he has his Savior, he has a portion that will never be taken away. God is my portion forever. No matter what you desire, if it's on earth, it will pass. If it's in heaven, it's a portion forever. He concludes the prayer, verse 28, with a new theological orientation. He's got a new theology now, everything he's learned in the sanctuary. Listen to the way he describes his orientation now in verse 28. For me, it's good to be near God. See, he had used that word good in the first sentence, God's good to those who are pure in heart. Now he's got a new understanding of goodness. You want to know what's good? To be near God. That's, that's all I need, he's saying. It's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Asaph realizes he was seeking refuge. He was seeking security in his own righteousness. That failed him. Now he has a new place of refuge. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Why? What am I going to do with all of this that I've learned now? that I may tell of all your works. You see, in Asaph's pre-sanctuary mindset, he was looking at his own good works. He washes more dishes than his wife. <laughs> he was talking about his own good works and the bad works of others. Now he's experienced God in the sanctuary, and he says, I want to tell the world now a new story about your good works. Do you realize we have a story to tell about the good works God has done for us on the cross? It's not our righteousness that will save us. It's his, even unto death. And if that's where our treasure is, we will never be disappointed. Where your treasure is, there also is your heart. Amen.